I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Endless Hustle podcast. I'm Bro Bible's Matt Cohan, and as always, I'm joined by the esteemed Arthur Cade. It is the season of giving, and we want to gift all of our hustlers out there. You guys have been so kind to us. So we are going to gift you not one, not two, but three amazing guests today who are all using their brand, their careers, and their hobbies to create other opportunities that matter to them. Our first guest is Miami Heat Center, Myers Leonard, who not only played in the NBA Finals, but just completed a cross-country road trip in partnership with Coors Light. I mean, that dude must have been a leper in a previous life. Later in the episode, we have legendary wrestler Booker T and his wife, Charmel, also former WWE superstar. They founded their own wrestling promotion, Reality of Wrestling. Arthur, give us some color commentary on who we got today. All right, Matt, I'm about to Tony Romo this and give you some real color commentary. Here's what I found interesting. Obviously, with Booker and Charmel, it's so cool anytime you see a husband and wife starting a business together. They come from the business, they're starting a business. So there's that equal mentality on how to make something successful. One of the things that I really loved learning about Myers Leonard was that him and his wife have a business together as well. And I feel like that's a running theme in this episode. You know, he met his wife, Elle, when they were in college. She was making protein bars for him. Obviously, that's why he married her. I mean, if, if I had a girl making protein bars for me in college, I'm in. They started this healthy snack company called Level Foods. It's been a success so far. That's pretty cool. And then they've really built it, which blew my mind, primarily through social media. Anytime you get to see those types of running threads, I always think it's really cool. Myers and Booker both kind of led us into their inner world, and I thought, that just was fascinating to get inside of both of their heads and explore the NBA from a current player perspective and wrestling from an iconic perspective. I thought we learned a lot. Uh, yeah, agreed. I mean, our first guest, Myers, I got to give him props because like he didn't get much burn going into the playoffs. The heat went a little smaller, a little faster. But is there anybody in the NBA who has more airtime on like NBA on TNT than Myers Leonard when he's on the bench. I mean, he is just always up, always cheering his team on and gets so much face time. So he's branding himself when he's on the bench. And that's probably why his company with his wife generated more than $250,000 in less than a year. And it was completely fully funded is because this dude is inserting himself into the conversation, even when he's not invited into it. A big part of the conversation we had with him, Matt, and I don't want to spoil too much of it because people are going to be listening to it. He's part of that new age athlete that's into esports and gaming. And, you know, he obviously told us, and I won't spoil this, but who he believes are the best gamers in the NBA, and that was great. But it's also fascinating because as you learn more about the way the modern athlete thinks, he's a perfect example of it. You know, his NBA salary was like, I think a little over 11 million this year. So where it used to be, hey, let's invest in Chick-fil-A's, he's now using that money to invest in esports, to invest in fitness companies, to invest in food. It really gives us a lot of insight into 
how the millennial and Gen Z or Gen X or whatever Gen these people are at this point, I'm old, I don't know, but whatever Gen they are, how they're investing their money. I thought he gave us a lot of insight into that. So without further ado, here is Myers Leonard. All right, fresh off the NBA Finals, we welcome to the Endless Hustle podcast, Heat Center, Myers Leonard, who is currently had just lived a 10-day dream traveling across, across America in a, you guessed it, Coors Light bus. Myers, you have to fill us in on that, please. Oh, man. Unbelievable trip. Like you just said, we literally just pulled up to the house here in L.A. so I can start my offseason training. But, oh, man, it was, uh, wow. You know, it was like a bucket list item, and then it was like a dream come true for Coors and I to work together, basically. We started, and we, because of driving regulations, we actually, we actually stopped in Georgia, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, we went to Nashville to see my little sister, who's a singer and songwriter there in Nashville. We then went to my hometown, which is Robinson, Illinois, which is in the su- southeastern part of the state. And then we went to my wife's hometown in Peoria, Illinois. From there, we went to Golden, Colorado, which is the home of Coors Light and the whole Coors family, etc. From there, we went to Moab, Utah and did an unbelievably cool hike yesterday. Then yesterday evening, we went to Vegas just to stop overnight, and then we went from Vegas to L.A. today. So crazy trip, <laughs> unbelievable, like, to be able to get to see family. And I don't know, it was just such a unique experience, and my wife and I loved it. All right, Myers, you're seven foot, 260 pounds. So here's the million-dollar question. How many Coors Lights does it take to get you drunk? Ooh, good question. So somebody asked me this the other day. Depending on my food intake, I would say – between eight and 10 is a buzz between 13 and 15 is drunk. And then once we get to 20, then we're really cooking, but I can drink a lot of Coors Light. Yeah. I mean, they said Andre, the giant sucked down 156 beers in one sitting and you're dude, I've seen the video. I watched this video five times in a row when I saw it in July, I think it was Jordan Clarkson, wasn't it? The shotgun. That was incredible. I'm the big hammer. I'm the hammer. <laughs> that right. was incredible, dude. <laughs> 20 beers, I feel like, would just be like an appetizer for you. Well, you know, I love my Coors Light. So when I'm with my buddies or when I'm relaxing, it's a Coors Light for me. You're one of the few guys that played into October. What is your stance on the new 72-game proposal starting on December 22nd? I said this a few days ago when someone had asked me about this. And you know what? I'm just a hardworking dude that loves what he does. So whatever I'm asked to do, that's fine. Now, do I think most guys would probably like to start in January? Maybe. But, you know, there's also a lot of other things that come into play. Money, you know, the TV deals, you know, the player association is constantly, you know, on the phone with the NBA, just trying to figure things out. So it's a very unique and dynamic, I guess, situation. You know, there's a lot more to it than what people realize. And so for me, it is what it is. I wish that I had longer, you know, to train, if I'm being frank with you. But it is what it is. You know, I'll grind for whatever it is. It's going to be like three weeks only, which is a short off-season training wow. period for me. So pretty crazy, but you just got to roll with the punches sometimes. You've played with some real tough dogs, man. This season, you had Jimmy and Bam. You've played with Dame. If I'm throwing you in an alley and you're in a street fight, Who's your street fight partner out of all your both current or former teammates? Udonis has him, no question. Oh, wow. Udonis can throw down? Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's got a lot of respect around the league. We'll just leave it at that. 
No, I know that too. And it's always, he seems like the elder statesman of the NBA. Like everybody respects him. But like as a fan, it's like you don't really know why because he was never that star player. Like what about Udonis is rises above the, the crop there? I mean, all of his past experiences for starters, just, you know, everything that he went through, you know, when he was younger and then, you know, he had to go overseas first and play. Then, you know, then he comes to Miami, which is where he's from you know, he had to find a way to make it work, right? Like, he leads the Heat in all-time rebounding. Like, that's crazy. Just think about that for a minute. You know, we're talking about a guy who's been with the Heat for 17 years. That's the definition of loyalty and, like, grind. Playing for the Heat is, like, a blessing because I love the culture and the discipline. And I'm not going to say I love the conditioning test, but at least, you know, you're held accountable for being in shape. You know, all those sorts of things. He is everything that you want in a leader and a teammate. You know, it's just he's very unique and – you know, for a guy who, like you said, it's not like people said, oh, you know, he's the reason they're winning. But trust me when I tell you behind the scenes, he's got a lot to do with why the Heat have won for many years. And when he was on the floor as well, because he's an absolute dog. He's got the dog mentality. Won't back down from nobody. He's grabbing every rebound. So he's big time. Dude, your hair game is insane. Walk me through the Myers Leonard hair routine. Oh, man. Well, first of all, I have like real thick hair. So Normally, I don't even have to put any product in it, which most people are pretty jealous of. But you know what? I, I don't know. I just go with a pretty simple fade on the side. And I, for one, feel that I'm a pretty decent-looking human being. So it just kind of all works out for me. Wow. Yeah, that is, that's a good stock of hair. My parents gave me a good one, too. So credit to me for that. I got to ask you about something that you mentioned. I, I was listening to you in the Andrew Collins podcast a few months ago, and you mentioned the South Beach flu. It's definitely a real thing. You know, because say, for example, my former team, Portland, that's the furthest team away from Miami. They only go there once. You know, Miami is a fun place. So there's a pretty good chance that at least some people are going to be going out. Now, that will have a negative impact more times than not on your ability to play. Now, some guys are freaks, right? They can just do whatever they want, no sleep, be up late, you know, doing whatever. And then be able to drop 30 on your head. But, you know, people enjoy Miami. You know, there's a reason. There's the weather. There's the nightlife, all that stuff. I, for one, am a homebody. Like, I literally go to the arena, train, work out, and then hang with my wife and dog in my house. That's pretty much it. But, yeah, it's definitely a real thing. There are so many legendary Pat Riley stories. He dunked his freaking head in a thing of ice. Give me a great Pat Riley story that you saw firsthand in your first year with the Heat. Oh, man. You know what? We kind of have every now and then, you know, he brings us in and just talks about, you know, the culture and, you know, he's proud of where the season is going. And honestly, for me, it's it's not actually one period of time or one instance. Pat is so loyal. I mean, obviously, his reputation is incredibly high level. You know, one of the best to ever do it, if not the best. The amount of respect that he has around the league and just period is a whole nother level. So, you know what, Pat, to me, I'll never forget. You know, we're talking, I'm going to my eighth season, and I'm doing an off-season workout, I think, in September, right when I had arrived uh, after being traded from Portland. And I was probably five or ten minutes in, and I kind of hear a door close off in the, not the distance, but just on the other side of the gym. And I think I'm getting ready to go shoot a free throw for, like, a quick, you know, break. And I look over, and I just see the slick back, and I'm like, holy shit, that's Pat Riley. You know, like, I, I have no shame in admitting that, like, he is a legend in the, in the game of basketball. So beyond that, it's just like how much he cares about the players, the Miami Heat organization, the people around him, 
his willingness to give back. Like he and I have a connection to the military, just being around him. And there was just something about Pat that I really, really appreciated just because, you know what, we're getting paid millions of dollars to play basketball. And I, for one, think it's important to have a certain level of discipline, character, work ethic, like all those things that matter to the heat are who I am as a man and as a player. So another person would be Jimmy, right? Oh, Jimmy Butler's an asshole. Jimmy's too mean to his teammates. Wham. No, Jimmy's not. Jimmy just likes to win and he wants you to be held accountable and have some discipline. Like what's the problem here? So there's a reason that was a match made in heaven as well. How is he off the court, Jimmy Butler? The best. You know, Jimmy and I spent a, a good amount of time together. You know, we both like country music, you know, getting meals together on the road. Just he has such a good heart and people just, it, you know, it takes time to get to know him. And certainly for the media, you know, they're not around him on a personal level, really. Right. So it can be hard to understand, I guess. But I mean, Jimmy, I, I said this to somebody like, again, I'm in my eighth season, but sometimes inspiring things happen like right before your eyes, like what he did in the playoffs. Like yeah. it sucked for me because... I had played well and started every game prior to my injury. And then I was just, you know, I was being the best teammate I could be. But seeing what he did, I was like, holy shit, I'm inspired. Like, I, like this, I'm ready to run through a wall. Like, get me to offseason training right now. So, you know, Jimmy's just unique. He's special. He works hard as hell. He's a good teammate. He's a good guy. And I'm glad that people are starting to see that. Did you throw down any money for his $20 coffee? I did. I always paid 40 actually, because I wanted to support his business. You're big into esports and Twitch, and so oh, yeah. are so many other players. What's the shit talk game like amongst Ooh. players with esports and Twitch? So let me just cut to the chase. Devin Booker and I are the best there is. He is a very good gamer. But there's not a, it's not close. There's not a better streamer than Myers Leonard, I guarantee it. Listen, wow. this amount of energy, passion, skill – you know, the, big the looks, I mean, everything it's off the charts. No one comes close. They just don't. Now there's some guys, you know, that are in the, in the ballpark of skill level. Like it's, I think it's D book and I, and then there's a lot of really good NBA gamers, but when it comes to being a, an entertainer on the screen, ain't nobody touching me. Yeah, dude, you're a WWF star. It seems if you didn't do that, <laughs> so many people have told me that is Juju a, uh, he did, he's part of that esports e nonsense, isn't he? Yeah, he sure is. Is he any good? I've played with him a couple of times. Yeah, he's he's good. He plays on mouse and keyboard, actually. So that's I, I, I play on PC, but on controller. Your shoulders are insane. My shoulders, Whose huh? shoulders? Yeah, your shoulders, dude, are incredible. I have pretty big shoulders, too, although you can't probably tell in this video, but I, I have pretty solid shoulders for a 6'2 dude. Who's got better shoulders, you or LeBron? I'm going to skip over LeBron and say Dwight Howard. Yeah. White's got some sick shoulders. I mean, it's insane how he's yeah, just a look, large human being. Those look cartoonish. Steven Adams got to be in, has to be in there too. Steven Adams is the strongest man in the NBA. Not close. What's it oh. like getting hit by him? You got to walk me through this. There's been so many stories. What is it like when he throws that elbow into you? Uh, it's not very pleasant, but you have to be willing to hit him back. That's what I always say. Like, I could care less how many years you've been in the league, how much status you have. I'm going to hit you back. That doesn't make me a fake tough guy. That just means I'm going to stand my damn ground. But Steven, I always say to people, find a brick wall and just run as fast as you can at it. And that's going to give you some representation of what it's like when he hits you.
you've never been one to shy away from contact. You're big, you know, you're a big body. You, you could make it in the 80s. What is your thoughts on all this load management? I know it's been, we've interviewed a bunch of different players, Al Harrington, Jay Williams, and no one can seem to find a consensus on, on how they feel about it. You know what? It's interesting because when you watch, like, so I've been around Dame and CJ and then Jimmy and Bam, like high usage, high minute guys. And, you know, it's like a part of me wants to say, like, the grinded out mentality and playing all these minutes. Like, first of all, a majority of the guys that you, former players that you see, like, their bodies don't look great. I'm just going to be honest with you. That doesn't mean I'm trying to disrespect what they did. I think it's unbelievable. Like, they set the stage for us. They were, you know, the ones who paved the way. But if teams and, you know, whatever, sports scientists and players are able to understand their bodies more, then I don't see why not. Now, I do think sometimes it becomes a bit much. Like, it's almost like a horse and pony show. Like, all right, man, like you probably could have played tonight or whatever. You know, so I think there's like, kind of both sides of the token i don't have like a definite answer because i do see guys like jimmy plays on both yeah. sides of the ball and hard as hell by the way i can only imagine the amount of minutes i play and i i play physical and box out and all these things that people don't really see where i wake up in the morning i'm like oh my god now i think about a guy like that who's doing it you know at 36 a night you know so it's like i don't know it's it's an interesting thing but there's two sides to it yeah, even LeBron, like 17 years he's been doing this stuff, and he's just it, he's just evolving. It's just a newfound respect for him that he's been playing this physical game for almost two decades. Yes, insane. Before we let you go, Myers, one last question. Best player you've ever seen is? Got to be LeBron James. Just the level of IQ, obviously the physical presence, the, you know, the vision, the passing, you know, finishing – you know, now he's, you know, got a post game and he's shooting the three well. Like, it's hard to tell when he's going to be done because he just keeps adding more. Like, he just let the league in assists, especially in the finals. Like, when you see it up close and personal, it becomes a whole nother type of respect as a player. And to be honest, I really enjoyed watching him play when I was growing up because he's been in the league, whatever, 17 years. So, I don't know. I've always enjoyed the way he plays the game personally. Yeah, it's tough to argue that one. All right, Miami Heat center, Myers Leonard, always gracious. Thanks for joining. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, good luck with the workouts. I appreciate that. Well, folks, that was Miami Heat center, Myers Leonard. And I think what we learned above all else, if we're in a street fight, call Udonis Haslam. He is the guy. But I also loved how he talked about Steven Adams, who's been on the trading block with all the crazy trades going on with the NBA draft and talking about how what it's like to run into him. That's a fascinating look from a seven foot, 265 pound guy talking about another seven footer and comparing him to a wall. And if you look at Myers Leonard, dude is a rock. So Steven Adams must be an absolute fucking beast. Yeah, Steven Adams, and he said Udonis. Like, he said Udonis like the toughest dude in the NBA without even a pause. Udonis is one of those guys, a lot like Lou Williams, is that his coolness supersedes his, like, skill. I'm not saying Lou is obviously sixth man of the year and stuff, but, like, Udonis, in, they just, like, exude that, like, coolness, and that's why they're going to be around the NBA, and that's why everybody loves them, and they get to play in sexy cities like Miami. Yeah, our next guest is iconic. I was so excited. We had Booker T and his wife, Charmel on. 
two-time Hall of Famer, wrestling icon. They've started this new business, Reality of Wrestling, in their hometown of Houston, giving young wrestlers a shot and some exposure. I think that's amazing. Anytime you can give back, I'm a huge fan of that. But what's really incredible, and we did such a fantastic job. I'm like patting us on the back right now, Matt. But digging into his story how he got started and, you know, comparing it to someone like Myers Leonard, who's a modern day athlete, Booker had to go through what the old school athletes had to go through. And even though he's a pioneer today, really getting an understanding, and I'll let you kind of describe what that story is, but getting an understanding of both the good and the bad of what he went through was pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, if there's ever a microcosm of life is just a bunch of happy accidents. I mean, Booker lost his parents as a kid. He spent time in prison. He didn't know where his direction was in life. And then a friend fronted him three grand to go to this wrestling school. He got discovered by Global Wrestling Federation. And now he's the Hall of Famer and one of the best to ever do it. I mean, I get life is just about taking that, that step without seeing the entire staircase. And I was super inspired by everything that him and Charmel had to say. Charmel has her own story valedictorian of her high school and has a degree in math. So, I mean, you can make whatever you want to make of your life. And these two people are just kind of examples of that. There were so many electric moments with this interview. I know for me personally, and again, not to give anything away, as a kid who grew up in the WCW, WWF days, and then the early WWE days, him talking about Ric Flair in and out of the ring, the impact of Hulk Hogan when he came over to WCW, Dennis Rodman, after just watching The Last Dance, Dennis Rodman showing up in the middle of the NBA Finals, hearing that from a first-person perspective on what that meant to both his career, his ability to market himself, other wrestlers being able to market themselves, and just the behind-the-scenes shit that you always wonder, and him giving us firsthand accounts on what was really going on. I thought it was marvelous, and he didn't really hold back, which was great. Well said. So without further ado, WWE legend Booker T and his lovely wife, Charmel. Enjoy. Welcome on the Endless Hustle, a true power couple, two-time Hall of Fame wrestler and one of the best to ever do it, Booker T and his wife, an international superstar, Queen Charmel. Thanks for making the time, guys. Thank you. I mean, I got to start off. This pandemic is putting a strain on a lot of relationships. How are you guys holding up? <laughs> same as usual. You know? yeah. I wish I could say the same. You know? you know, steady on the grind, just trying to stay focused, you know, trying to meet the goals um, more than anything. And, you know, there's still, even in the pandemic, it's still a lot of work to be done. And we've always lived together and worked together. So this is nothing new, being stuck in the house with each other. <laughs> So, Charmel, what's it like being married to Booker T? I mean, this guy's such a monster personality in and out of the ring. What's he like behind the scenes? Never a dull moment. Always laughs. Booker's, you know, always joking. Really silly, keeping a smile on my face, on the kids' faces. So, it's just always fun. Charmel, you, you get a degree in math. You were a pageant queen. When you decided to take a stab at pro wrestling, were your loved ones like, what, what are you doing? Absolutely. I thought I was <laughs> crazy, but I always say I think that uh, my path in professional wrestling was actually to meet Booker. That was the purpose of all of it. Yeah, I would say that's a big win in yeah. anybody's book, I feel like. Booker, you founded the Reality of Wrestling promotion in 2005, I believe, when you still had a lot on your plate. What was the impetus for starting that, and why did you feel like it was, uh, it was like filling a void? 
You know, when I got in the business, it was rough. You know, it's underground, you know, and, and, and a wrestling school opened. It was Ivan Pusky. It was, it was $3,000 for an eight-week course. And I was like, wow, you know, and you can't really, and I realized, you know, after, you know, I got in, I made it, but you can't really learn anything in eight weeks. And uh, they give you a little certificate, and it's like you graduated from high school or whatever. <laughs> and, and, you can't use it anywhere. You can't go to any promoter and say, hey, I got my diploma. Yeah. Yeah. Here's my participation trophy. Yeah, exactly. So it's useless. And I keep it. It's still, I still have it in my office in, in like one of the drawers or something just so I can show the boys, you know, uh, to tell that story. But I just want to give uh, young people a, a way in, uh, a chance to be a part of something at the same time. You know, so many kids these days, uh, especially in the social media a world, you know, they all, you know, hunkered in, you know, tapping on that keyboard. And to bring them together, I thought was very, very important to create there again a unity, stories that they're gonna be able to have for for, for the rest of their lives, friendships that they're gonna that's gonna last forever, as well as Charmel and I create something at the same time. And that was just the school. It was never about the wrestling promotion or anything like that. It was just about having the school because Charmel has a passion about schooling as well. And that just, you know, turned into, you know, what it is now. But that was the primary uh, objective about bringing the school uh, to life was just to give young people a chance to get into the business and get a springboard. And if they're good enough, have someone put a word in for them and say, hey, we got a kid over here that, you know, may be the next level. So that's what it's all about. Booker, I was watching The Last Dance. And I forgot what a shit show it was when Dennis Rodman left during the NBA Finals to come wrestle with you guys. I don't want any cliche stories. I need the real story. What happens when Dennis Rodman shows up in the middle of the NBA Finals and just fuck shit up? <laughs> hey, man, you know, when you're in the wrestling business, for me, I'm there again, I'm a promoter now. You know, so if I can get someone like Dennis Rodman to come in and, and cause havoc, you know, that's ratings for me, you know. So I'm always thinking from that perspective. I'm sure, you know, if Vince McMahon could have had that same thing happening going on, you know, he would have taken it because numbers is ratings, ratings is dollars. And at the end of the, of the day, that's what it was all about. So when Dennis was there, he was bringing a spotlight on WCW for, for me to go out and perform at the highest level for those millions of fans that he had brought in. You talk about, in a prior interview, I, I know you'd mentioned cocaine behind the scenes and all this crazy stuff. <laughs> what was that like? I mean, give me the underground stuff, the stuff that the average fan doesn't know. As far as, you know, the shenanigans going on, you know, and I talk about that story. I, I've, I've talked about how when Eric Bischoff was at the helm of the company and then, you know, the NWO came in and then he became one of the boys, you know, and then it was a lot of partying going on. We were doing shows that didn't make any sense. It was a party. It was, it was a huge party. I mean, I don't have to get into the details or anything, throwing about his names out there or anything, but it was a party going on. And I really think that was the demise of WCW losing focus like Charmel and I are trying not to do right now in the pandemic, keeping our eye on the prize, knowing exactly what the end game is and what's at the end of the rainbow. So I think um, it, was a, it was a great time. I was making a lot of money, you know what I mean? It did not bother me one bit, man, I swear. We, were, we was at one hotel and I told Charmel, baby, we living it up. <laughs> we laughed on, on a regular basis. <laughs> like a prize on the wall watching everything going on. 
But there again, having a plan and making sure that everything was uh, focused towards the big picture. And that was me winning at the end of the day. You mentioned that it was a spotlight. It brought a spotlight to wrestling. But is there a little bit like of imposter syndrome, say, when like a Gronk, a Rodman, Malone, now people are thinking Pat McAfee would be a good fit. How do people in the industry view these guys stepping in? Is there any sense that it's undermining what it takes to be good at the job? You know, when it's right, when it fits, it can be done. You know, just like, say, for instance, when Pat McAfee came in and did his deal, with Adam Cole. At the beginning, you know, I was like, man, I've never seen a, a kicker get into a fight. I mean, what does what this guy know about going out and throwing hands? <laughs> I watched him go out and work and perform, but then I watched the work that he put in too, you know, that one night. And then I watched the respect and the, and the love that come from him inside. Um, that's not something that you can teach someone. That's not something that's pretend. And then he went out and did a hell of a job. And I'm like, wow, man, you know, he won me over. You know, so, but at the beginning, I didn't feel that way about him. So when it fits, you know, when it works, you know, go with it. The thing that him and Adam Cole did on the Pat McAfee show, it was real because I bought it. I was like, wow, they hooked me, man. You know, they got me real good on that one. You know, so when it works, you know, um, go with it because it's wrestling. It's not MMA. It's not boxing. It's not, you know, that type of sport. And when we move away from that kind of stuff with professional wrestling, I think we lose, you know, our focus of what professional wrestling really is. I want to ask you about one of my all-time favorites, Ric Flair. I remember watching this documentary where Rick's talking about the lifestyle he was living behind the scenes. And he's like, I'm having 50 drinks tonight, then going into the ring. And it was mind-blowing to me. What was it like with the Ric Flair era, like you are an absolute professional. You were a beast. When you see this guy living it up in and out of the ring, what was kind of the thought process at that time? No, um, everybody wanted to be Ric Flair, man. You know what I mean? Um, it's no secret or anything. Ric Flair, he, you know, was the guy who was, you know, cutting promos, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, at center stage, you know, pretty much to tell the ladies to meet him at, you know, Rupert at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> I would make sure I showed up at Rupert's as well. (laughs) No, Uh, it was a great time, man. It was a great time. Learning from Ric Flair, earning the respect um, from Ric Flair, you know, because I was one of the guys that started out at the bottom and then I ended up at the top. And Ric Flair was the guy that passed the charge to me and said, man, you're you're the guy. That meant a lot because I knew where Ric Flair came from in the era that he came from, in the era that we're living in right now, seeing everything that's going on on the street, see it up close and personal, and go through changes to get to that point to pass the ball off to me, a black man. So, nah, man, it was cool. Uh, My first time being able to wrestle with Ric Flair in a singles match and learn so much, you know, just by osmosis of being in the ring with Ric Flair, you know. So, nah, man, it was a great time, you know, with the parties. They were real. Uh, him being in the, you know, the bar with nothing but his robe on. Those are stories were real, man. So, but it was a great time. I got to know a great Ric Flair story that you've never told before that, like, is just going to make me fall even more in love with Rick. Oh, wait, brother. <laughs> <laughs> were you at his wedding? Yeah, yeah. I've been in um, um, a lot of occasions um, for, for Ric Flair, man. Um, and the thing is, by invitation, you know, we're actually friends 
You know, I've had a you know a lot of uh, you know talk with, with, with Ric Flair, you know, on a personal level. And, and, I don't, and like I said, I don't get into those kind of conversations or anything like that because, like I say, we've come a long way, and I've come a long way um, in this business. And then there again, to have um, garnered the respect from one like Ric Flair, you know, uh, it means a lot to me. And then again, he's gone through a lot too in his life, and now he's you know uh, you know reflecting on those things too. You know what I mean? So you know, I just don't like to tell you know stories. It, it's great to see him back on his feet. And I remember there was this image that pops up in my nightmares every now and then. It's of him and his wife when they're you may now kiss the bride, and he's got his tongue all the way down her throat. <laughs> I swear to God, I just wake up in a sweat once every month just just with that image. And but it was so good to see him back when obviously he's had some health struggles, but he's you know he's a man who I feel like just think about it. Just think about it. You know, Rick Flair, he's, he's He's, man, come on, man. He's lived a, a freaking full life. He's ticking, man. He's still going. He's questioned himself many, many days. Man, why am I still here? But it's, you know, God has a plan for our followers. I want to back up a little bit because it seems like for 99.9% of Americans, even the thought of pursuing a career in pro wrestling is inconceivable. I feel like you two, giving your early pass, would be no different. I mean, Booker, you obviously were locked up for a period when you were young, and Charmel, you were the valedictorian of your high school, I read. So could you have ever guessed you'd be where you are today? And can you pinpoint a specific time where you were like, this could actually be a viable career? for me? Well, for me, it wasn't um, looking for uh, wrestling or anything like that. I never dreamt of being a professional wrestler or anything like that. That just wasn't the way I grew up or anything. But I always loved it. I watched it as a kid, you know, on a, daily ba- on a weekly basis anyway. And, you know, actually twice a week on uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning, you know, we watch wrestling. It would be the same show, you know, but I loved it. I never played sports or anything like that, but I, I loved, you know, movies. I was very athletic. And then after going to prison and, and coming home, look, trying to find something, it was my brother who met Ivan Pusky, and Ivan Pusky was opening a wrestling school, and my brother asked me if I wanted to try it because he was going to try it. And I was like, man, yeah, I'd love to. But I didn't have the money, and uh, it was $3,000. And the guy that I was working for at that time, I had showed him my heart. And, you know, he, you know, really believed in me. And he fronted me the three grand to go to the wrestling school. And from that day on, for me, it was kind of like history. You know, deja vu. It seemed like I had been there my whole life. Um, The first day that I was in a wrestling ring, it was just natural for me to to actually be able to do it. And I was like, wow, you know, and, and I just, I didn't think it was going to be a career or anything like that, but uh, I pursued it. You know, I, I would leave the neighborhood, you know, that I lived in with, you know, all the brothers and I would go to the white side of town and put my boots and wrestle with the white guys. <laughs> you know, that was kind of cool, you know, because I was kind of like living a fantasy life kind of, you know, and, yeah. and you know, I was kind of good too. And I was, I was pretty much uh, kind of like a star too at the same time. You know, even though I was nobody, but even though the independent small organization, a lot of people were coming there to see me. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then my brother and I, of course, uh, got discovered in the Global Wrestling Federation, which was really, really cool. And, and we were going all over the world when we were in Global, which was just in Dallas. We were on television on a weekly basis. And we were actually going all over the world at that time before we ever got to, you know, a major contract or anything, the WCW side. They offered us $75,000 and I had never made, you know, more than $15,000 in a year at that time. And I was, I was like, this might work, you know. <laughs> but I, I still kept my old job, even though I was in WCW, they had a signed contract, I still had my old job at the warehouse 
at the same time because I just didn't know if it was going to work out. It was, it was kind of crazy how it happened, but you know, it happened pretty quick. Within two years, I made it to a major company and been there ever since. I grew up during the WWF versus WCW era, and those two organizations had very distinct and different feels. What was it like when you were part of the WCW? What was the feeling of you guys versus us at the WWF at that time? And the second half of my question is, there weren't a lot of black faces in wrestling back then. We obviously see many, many more now. How difficult was it? Was there racism? Were you dealing with issues because of that, especially because a lot of the WCW was Southern-based? What was it kind of like? You know, it's kind of crazy, uh, but I never had to deal with a whole lot of racial issues, even it being in WCW and even in the good old boy uh, system, the old good old boy clique, as we called it. Of course, I had to feel my way through. Um, I had to get my foot in the door. But once I got my foot in the door, I think everything else pretty much just played itself out as far as, you know, making it to the next level. And maybe it kind of like played into our favor being the only Blacks at that time, but being very, very talented um, Blacks at the same time because I don't think they want to lose us. I know they didn't want to lose me. And, and so many guys jump ship and go to WWF, uh, WWE at that time. I could have been one of those guys. And I was one of the few guys joining a lot of Black ratings, especially in Atlanta, man. I was like the man. You know, it was a great time for me. And um, as far as dealing with racial issues, there again, just like we're going through right now in the world, you have to head racial issues off right there, you know, at the front line. You can't think, you can't look around, you can't accept it one time. Um, you have to address it. And, and, and a person told me, a person by the name of Ox Baker, former professional wrestler back in the day, he told me, you got a lot of talent, kid. You can make a lot of money in this business. And he said, but you're going to come up against a lot of obstacles. And he never said the obstacles was racial or anything like that, but I think I knew what he meant. He said, but you, you got a lot of talent. He said, you're going to have to figure out a way over, under, around. He said, but sometimes you have to go straight through that obstacle. And for me, I've always took the, the, the fourth approach first. <laughs> it always seemed to dissolve itself. What was the feeling when Hulk Hogan came over to you guys? I remember that was just monumental and pretty much made national news because Hulk was the man who built the WWF and the WWE. When he switched organizations, what was the thoughts inside of the WCW? I always thought about this business as a business. I never, you know, thought about it as, you know, one of the guys in the locker room marking out or anything like that or being too happy about something or whatnot. I focused about my paycheck and if my dollars were going to go up and I thought Hogan coming in, my numbers was going to go up, which they did. You know, I started getting paid a whole lot more money when Hogan came over from a tag team perspective. And then when I became a singles wrestler, man, I really, you know, like skyrocketed. So I always looked at it as, as a business. And um, I learned from, you know, those guys, too, when they came in, as far as how they structured their contracts, how they made sure they had this in there and that in there and whatnot. So, you know, just so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, you walk away from this on the upside. You know, you don't want to be like, you know, the wrestler. You know, you, you watch the movie with Mickey Rourke, you know. It's great, you know what I mean, to live out that dream and whatnot. But, but you want to be able to enjoy the fruits of the labor at the end of the day, you know, so that's what my motive and objective apparandi was all about was, man, Hulk coming in, man, I always was a fan of Hulk until I called him the N-word. Um, 
But I, I always was a huge fan of Hulk. And when Hulk came in, the Harlem Heat got a huge push because Hulk Hogan said, those are your guys right there. You need to push those guys. You know, Sherry Montel, bang, everything blows up for us. You know, we become the tag team, you know, of the present and the future and close it down as the greatest tag team in WCW's history, in my opinion, 10-time tag team champions. So I appreciated, you know, everything Hulk did, you know. And I, I don't know if Hulk made some points off of me, you know, for putting the word in. Maybe he did. <laughs> but, you know, I always look at it as you get your little piece of the pie and, and, and you try to figure out how you're going to, you know, make it off of that. Yeah, I, I just watched that video again when my favorite comedian is Bill Burr. He does a breakdown of it when you when you call him the N-word. And you can see, like, it's slow-mo. You can see yourself kind of go like this. What were you thinking in that moment? Were you like, oh, shit, I really... Well, you know, I'm from the neighborhood, you know. Yeah. And that and the thing is, throughout all these years and all of the, you know, my, my years I've been in the business, and, and I, I always talk, talk about talking to young people about knowing how to change your levels, so, you know, when you go for a job interview, you know, you can't be the same way you are. Uh, um, like you, like when you're in the hood, you know, messing around with your boys, you know, it's something totally, you got to know how to change your levels because you're dealing with a totally different animal. Just the hood came out of me uh, there for a second. And, and I realized it at that moment. And, and the thing is, no, none of my peers has ever heard me say that word before or after that moment. And um, I felt like I let so many of my, my people down when I said that, because I always looked at myself as respect and so many young people looking at me. And a lot of young people took that and made that like an anthem. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not an anthem. That's not the way we, we talk. We don't want, I don't want you to hear me say that because if you hear me say that, why shouldn't you be able to say it? You know what I mean? And that's why I, I felt like I let so many of my people down when that happened. And that's what I was thinking. Um, at that moment. And thank God we, we wasn't living in the social media era at that time. Or perhaps you and I would not be having this conversation. Oh, you'd be done. Can the cancel culture would come for you. There it is right there <laughs> in, in a nutshell. Charmel, as a female wrestler, to see what's happened right now, where the divas are actually headlining mainstay events for the WWE, did you ever imagine that we would get to this point where female wrestlers are arguably as popular, or even more popular than some of the male wrestlers? Well, absolutely, especially when social media became so popular. Um, you know, females are very athletic, and as they're proving, very entertaining, very athletic. We have some amazing females out there, and I'm, I'm very happy that they are main eventing right now. I wouldn't call myself a female wrestler, <laughs> though. You know, I did dabble, but... You know, I started as a nitro girl. Dance was my passion. When they um, decided dance had no place in wrestling, then that's when we had to learn how to wrestle. But I quickly moved on to being a manager and being on the sidelines, seeing all of these women compete. You know, it's just been, it's been incredible. They're getting their just due and, and I'm here for it. I love every minute of it. And we got one of our own, um, you know, that pretty much sit under the learning tree of Charmiel back in the day, Ember Moon, out there doing her thing. And man, I'm just so glad she's back, you know, coming back off of a, a, a serious, serious, perhaps career-ending um, Achilles injury. And now she's back in there. She's doing it big, man. Yeah, she, yeah. She's definitely, her, her thought process has gone through the mood. And that's what I'm more proud of is her, her psychology, man. It's, it's unbelievable right now. 
Charmel, you, you mentioned that you broke out in dance, but from what I know that you were a backup dancer for years for the Godfather of Soul, James Brown. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so that was awesome because I got to travel all over the world. I think the only place I haven't been is Antarctica, but I performed everywhere, you know, inside of the Kremlin, just all over the place, right? So I've seen the world and it was amazing. He was the ultimate professional. We always said that Soundcheck was really our first show because he did a full-blown, you know, show during Soundcheck. And then we had to come back that night and do a show. But I learned so much from him about being professional and lasting in the entertainment industry. And so, yeah, the dances that we did, he sped up all of his music because his catalog is so extensive. So he sped up all his music during the show. So I got a workout. So, you know, you were talking about being in ring, ring shape, ring conditioning. Oh my goodness. <laughs> me for absolutely anything, you know, that life could throw my way. I think the only thing that surpassed the energy from the fans of James Brown actually is wrestling because, you know, especially WrestleMania, when you come out and you feel the energy from that crowd, nothing can compete. But James Brown definitely prepared me for that. Booker, you're the meme king because you have some of the craziest faces imaginable. Walk me through the process of how you develop some of these faces and can you get them out on command? Like if I'm like, give me this face or that face, can you just bring it out? You know, I'm, I'm normally a red light guy. You know, when the red light is rolling, normally when I'm acting, I'm normally like mild mannered, you know, before action. But for me, I've always been there again, someone who loved movies. Um, someone, that's why King Booker was so easy for me to do and portray, you know, royalty, you know. But it, it's just something that I'm always thinking about. Um, and the reason why I'm thinking about it, and I hope these young guys, especially the young wrestlers, I hope they're thinking about it too. Hollywood is always watching. I mean, The Rock, man, it was watching The Rock, man. It was like, man, we need him. Let's get this guy, man. And look at him now, you know, he's one of the biggest in Hollywood. For me, you know, I've had a lot of opportunities where, you know, they've wanted me to do this and want I just don't want to do that kind of stuff, but I'm always thinking, you know, be prepared, you know what I mean? Because this, right now everything's good for me, but I might have to go that route sometimes. So always have your Shakespeare, your Romeo and Juliet, your Phantom of the Opera ready to throw out at a moment's notice, you know? So preparation is the only luck you're ever going to have in life. I want to hear some Booker T. Shakespeare right now. <laughs> <laughs> Charvel, you mentioned that, uh, you know, walking out is that that exhilaration. You know, we talked to Chuck Liddell and current boxer Otto Wallen, and I'm interested to know when that curtain breaks and you walk out, the music playing, thousands of fans screaming, you know, how are you feeling in that moment? Chuck said he was able to kind of disassociate and be emotionless, whereas Otto was like super giddy about it. What is that emotion for you two like? For me, I just absolutely lose myself. It's like I become one with the energy. And so it's almost like... I'm on autopilot because I'm really experiencing everything around me. So I've done the preparation. I've done the work. I know what it is, what it takes to get to the ring. I know, you know, I have to be in the moment then when I get to the ring, be in the, in the middle of the action and in the moment then. But that walk to the ring is just my time to lose myself and appreciate the energy, appreciate the fans and kind of just become one with that moment. I am uh, pretty much uh, retired in, in 2014. 
I would just say I was at the uh, kickoff shows this weekend. Uh, they, the producers, they wanted me, King, and uh, Jeff Jarrett to do the thing inside the hell of the cell and, and describe it and whatnot. And I was, I felt like really, really funny, you know. And I was like, I suggested, hey, uh, why don't we, uh, you know, let Peter Rosenberg, the King, do that, you know, just because it'll look better, you know, from the scene and whatnot. I say just, a, but my thing was, my, one of my real reasons were, I got a phobia uh, about being around, you know, like the WWE ring. I haven't been in the WWE ring or near it or inside it other than having to do something on television since I got out of the ring. I got a phobia. Um, and it's always been that way for me when wrestling. It's, it's, I've always been like really, really scared to walk before I walk out of the curtain. You know, but once I walk out of the curtain, everything seems to go away and I, I'm, in, and I'm able to perform. But and I think this being scared and having that nervous energy always worked for me because I always wanted to be the best guy in the locker room. And, and it wasn't a game. It was real. It was something that I wanted to leave a legacy to where people said, man, you know, Booker T was one of the greatest wrestlers that ever did it. You know, but I got two Hall of Fame rings, you know, <laughs> and it's only, uh, you know, a few people that, that's done that. And I, and I didn't take any crazy bumps or anything like that. I didn't do any crazy matches. You know, I'm not known for that kind of stuff. I always wanted to be the best, but but that nervous energy was, man, I'm so glad I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. Booker, who was the toughest dude in all the years of wrestling? Who was the toughest dude? Chris Benoit, in a, in a, in a nutshell. I mean, he was the best wrestler I ever wrestled, best that ever did. His intensity. But these young guys and young people now can just, you know, take a little bit away from the thought process of what professional wrestling is, you know, when you watch someone like him walk to the ring, it's as real as we make it. And I, and I tell you, I don't think I would have been as good as I turned out to be if it wasn't for the best of seven series that no one really get a chance to see these days other than, you know, they can pull it up on YouTube. And so many kids, you know, when I talk to them, they always say, man, the best of seven, you know, but we really never really talk about the seven series, but it was the best series in the history of professional wrestling. I've, in my opinion, I, I don't think uh, it would have been as good as it was if it wouldn't have been him and I. It would have been him and somebody else. It wouldn't have been as good. <laughs> Someone else, it wouldn't have been as good. But for him and I to go out and really beat each other up and try to display the art of professional wrestling there again, Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, Phantom of the Opera, Bravo, Shakespeare, uh, you know, Encore, you know, all of that stuff. You know, he was the best. You two have been around the sport for so long. Like, what do wrestling executives look for in a prospect? Is it more important to have like superior physicality and hope to mold the personality and character, or is like the personality and charisma kind of paramount, and then kind of the physicality is is in the back seat? Well, the physicality is the first thing you see. You know, what's in the box is the first thing you see. You go, know, wow, okay, man, I might can work with this guy, you know, so, but, but sometimes some of those guys may not be as, you know, athletic, may not be as artistic, you know, um, so, you know, you got to try to find a medium. You can't, you can't judge a book by its cover. You might, you might look at one guy and say, oh man, put him to the side. And I've done that before. And that, and that guy turned out to be the best guy in the whole camp, you know, so, you know, so you got to uh, give everyone an opportunity, a chance to go out and, and be able to make people feel a certain way because, you know, you look at Dusty Rhodes and he made you feel a certain way, no matter how big he was or what he looked like. When you heard him talk and when you watched him wrestle, you go, oh, man, that's my guy, I'm voting for him. You know, so 
it's it's about trying to let one you know express themselves because like I say there again, this is professional wrestling. It's not MMA. It's not boxing. It's professional wrestling. And in, in our school, we call it performing art more than professional wrestling, just because uh, we are, you know, trying to make sure we entertain at the highest level, and we want to be able to do it on a weekly basis. No other sport can uh, do that on a weekly basis. <laughs> so that's what we're trying to do. Booker, before you go, I have one last question. I saw this great video of you and LL Cool J. Walk me through the, how that happened. I want to whoop his ass, man, but he was pretty jacked at that time. <laughs> I'll whoop his ass now, though. I'm telling you, I, I want to look at him on the NCI, oh, yeah. I'll take him down. He's over the hill. No, man, but it was, you know what? I got a photo of LL and I in my gym. To be able to um, have been a part of so many different things, man. I got a, a photo of Muhammad Ali and I on my wall at, at my school as well. To be a part of so many things throughout my career, meeting my wife, coming from where I came from, very, very humble background, losing my parents when I was a kid, not knowing who I was going to end up in this life. And then, you know, being a skit with LL Cool J, hey, man, it don't get no bigger than that. It really don't. It really yeah. don't. And, and actually, I have it play out and did him tell me, you know, about getting my ass whooped in a grocery store. You know, I mean, come on. It's going to get me better than that, you know, because that's what they're getting. That's what wrestling is. And I'm sure when I see him, you know, on the set one of these days, you know, we're going to boom, you know, and say, man, how you doing? Because we both made it. We're both still here. We're both striving for young people to be able to do the same thing that we did and not just do what we did, but do it bigger and do it better than we ever did. Well said. Booker T and Charmel, thank you guys so much for making the time. Good luck with the reality of wrestling, and you guys were amazing. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much, guys. Tons of fun. Thanks. And that, folks, Booker T and Charmel, I think we would all agree, fantastic interview. Can we just all comprehend what it was like to be around Ric Flair during that time? I mean, when, when Booker T drops the Rick knows he's lucky to be alive, yeah. Ric Flair is the modern Iron Man. He's Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Like, there's probably, like, a thing inside his heart that's keeping him ticking because... He's a national treasure. Like, wouldn't be surprising to me if Obama or Trump or whoever was president when he had those medical issues literally flew on Air Force One to to save him because Ric Flair is that important to American society. Yeah, he's on the Mount Rushmore of guys I want to party with. I mean, I would take five years off my own life to party with him for one night. I mean, that's just one of those guys. And I'm so glad that Booker T actually gave us some insight about, you know, him dropping the promos about where where the girls should meet them. I mean, that's just a soundbite I've never heard anywhere before. And I'm so glad I know that. I also think what was interesting, and I know you're a huge fan of Pat McAfee, Matt, and this really connected with you. But here's this guy, Pat McAfee, who's become such an enormous star in his own right. I was just blown back when you asked him that question about Pat being brought in and Gronk and other famous faces and to see Booker's face light up it was it was incredible because he understands the impact that both we'll call it old and young celebrities have when they come into his sport to create 
both for him and other wrestlers, their ability to market themselves. And you would think in an age where athletes are all jealous, where it's my brand or nothing, Booker really leaned on the fact that, hey, anytime we can get someone who has their own popularity outside of wrestling to come in and help promote the sport like a Pat McAfee, that benefits us all. And that's part of that old school mentality, which is let's win together versus I win myself. I thought that was really um, insightful to hear from him. Me personally, like I was a huge wrestling fan as a kid and I kind of weaned off growing up. So like, I just don't know really what is a transferable skill into the wrestling world. Is it like you have the Gronks, you have the LeVar Balls who have these big bombastic personalities, like, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a shoe in for a good personality under the WWF umbrella or WWE umbrella. So I was really glad that he and Charmel both kind of enlightened us on how, what skill set you need to actually be successful in an industry like wrestling that's like nothing else on the planet. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Matt. And we're settling into another week next week. And I think we can both agree, pretty amazing guests coming up. Our next podcast is going to feature. NBA superstar Baron Davis, you and I were watching his highlight reel and his dunk over AK-47, which we talked a ton about with him. And you just forget Baron Davis was such a G, man. He was he was an absolute G on the court. And then we also in that episode have heavyweight contender Otto Wallen, who took Tyson Fury the distance and pretty much almost took his eye out of his socket. He gave him that like 50 stitch cut in his last fight before he fought um, Deontay Wilder. So two great guests coming up. Super excited for the next podcast. Baron, let it all hang out there. And this was our first boxer on the podcast with Otto. So I'm excited to have more on. And we talked about the upcoming Tyson fight as well, which, you know, with him and Roy Jones, everybody's talking about right now. So it's going to be a great podcast for people to listen to. Yeah, I'm excited for you guys to hear it. And also don't forget to subscribe and review. Thank you for every, to everybody who's, helped out with that and you know who continues reached out likes the content uh you can follow us on uh twitter at endless double underscore hustle and on instagram at endless hustle pod on twitter i'm at it's me arthur cade on instagram i'm at arthur cade and you can follow my personal account on twitter at mr cohan mr mr and cohan k-e-o-h-a-n and on instagram at king cohan we're cutting up clips. We're making custom videos of all this content. So it's it's well worth it to follow us on social as well. So follow us there, tune into our podcasts and tell us you love us. Thank you. And thank you for supporting The Endless Hustle. We've got some amazing guests coming up. Get ready. It's going to be a wild ride.